0: This podcast was first broadcast on FreshFM, the top of the South community access radio station. For more information on FreshFM as well as links to other great local podcasts, go on our website freshfm.net or download the accessmedia.nz app. What would you do if you knew you were going to die or that someone you loved was going to die? Well, guess what? You are, and you do. No mai harimai, and welcome to Death Walker's Guide to Life, a euphemism-free show that deals with everything about death and dying you wished you knew, but were afraid to ask. In it, we'll explore together how thinking and talking about death can help you live a life without regrets. Call Kerry Sunderland toku My name is Kerry Sunderland, and I'm the host and producer of this show, which is first broadcast on Fresh FM in Titoihu, the top of Aotearoa, New Zealand's South Island, and then available around the world on many of the major podcast platforms. Deathwalker's Guide to Life is sponsored by CNF Legal in Whakatu, Nelson. Did you know that in New Zealand roughly 1,500 people die every year without a will? Don't be one of those people. And be wary of DIY. Homemade wills can be trickier and take longer to get through probate. So don't cut corners, it will cost you and your loved ones in more ways than you can imagine. CNF Legal's specialist team of solicitors and legal executives can help you with every aspect of planning for the inevitable end of your life. So give Marie or Robin a call on 03 545 8080. Kia ora and thank you for joining me for Episode 7 of Death Walker's Guide to Life. In today's show, we're going to discuss several extraordinary, beautiful brains and how they have changed the course of numerous people's lives. Coming up in today's show, I will be speaking with Bonnie Etherington, who was born in Fakatu, Nelson, here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, but spent most of her childhood in West Papua. More recently, Bonnie has been living in the US, but returned in October this year after her life dramatically changed course. Stay tuned to find out more. You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life and now it's time for Death in Print. In this segment, in each show, I talk about a new book or article that has something interesting to say about death and dying. Today we're going to delve into the extraordinary literary mind of the American poet, memoirist and novelist Patricia Lockwood and her latest book, No One is Talking About This. The 39-year-old is often described as the poet laureate of Twitter after making a name for herself with her whip-smart, weird and often provocative tweets. She and our New Zealand counterpart, the equally sassy and smart poet Hera Lindsay Bird, struck up a friendship in the Twitterverse. They then met on stage as part of the 2018 New Zealand Festival's Writers' Program in conversation with Charlotte Graham MacLeod. You can, by the way, find a fabulous comic account of this kōrero by Aotearoa cartoonist Tara Black on her website, and I will provide details about how you can find the links to that later in today's show. This festival appearance sort of makes its way into No One Is Talking About This, which was shortlisted for this year's Man Booker Prize. It is also one of the New York Times' 10 Best Books of 2021. Now, Lockwood herself describes it as a novel about being very inside the internet and then being very outside of it. No one is talking about this is a novel, but if you were like me at the New Zealand Festival session in 2018, you will recognise some of the scenes in the book, which kicks off with Lockwood's unnamed protagonist, Finding Infamy on the Portal, which is her name for the internet, then embarking on a world tour that includes a number of book festival appearances. She grapples with the omniscience of social media in our lives and what it means for her identity. Then the second part of the book is quite different. It suddenly and dramatically shifts into another realm after the narrator's sister gets pregnant and then, as they say, shit gets real understandably leaving Lockwood's protagonist little time to concern herself with anything else. Lockwood acknowledges that her novel is based on her own niece, Lena's heartbreaking short life. Lena was the first person ever to be diagnosed in utero with Proteus Syndrome, and I hope I've pronounced that right. It's a one-in-a-billion uh, one disorder whose most famous sufferer was the elephant man. Basically, the brain doesn't stop growing. Lockwood's love for her niece and the character in her novel she inspired oozes from the pages. And then in her acknowledgments, she encourages readers to find out more about Proteus Syndrome and consider donating. She also suggests readers donate to Pets for Patients, an organisation that matches pets with the families of chronically and terminally ill children. Like all of Lockwood's writing, no one is talking about this is called a novel, but it really defies such a straightforward categorisation. It's part auto-fiction, part prose poetry, and her use of language is, as always, utterly mind-blowing. You're listening to Deathwalker's Guide to Life with Kerry Sunderland. In today's show, I am delighted to welcome Bonnie Etherington. Bonnie is just about to join the Literary and Creative Communication Faculty at Teherenga Waka, Victoria University of Wellington. Previously, she was a lecturer in literature for the University of the South Pacific and was the 2020-2021 Environmental Futures Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Colorado Boulder. Bonnie's first novel, The Earth Cries Out, which was published by Vintage New Zealand in 2017 is based on her experiences growing up in West Papua. It was shortlisted for the 2018 William Saroyan International Prize for Writing and longlisted for the 2018 New Zealand Book Awards. Bonnie was shortlisted for the Commonwealth Short Story Prize in 2016 and has had poetry, short fiction and non-fiction published in literary magazines and anthologies in Australia, New Zealand, the USA and Malaysia. So it's pretty clear she has an extraordinarily creative mind powered by an extraordinary brain. And we're just about to find out how extraordinary that brain is. Kia ora and welcome to Death Walker's Guide to Life, Bonnie. Kia ora. Did I pronounce mispronounce the name of that award it's the William Soroyan, Soroyan International Prize for Writing sorry I should have checked oh, that good. before we went on it but never mind move on with that so like me you have a personal essay published in Headlands New Stories of Anxiety which was published by VUP in 2018 and like my essay your essay which is called Naming concerns itself in some parts with death and dying um, I know I just reread it in prep for today's show and you open the essay by telling us how your best friend died when you were only five and living in West Papua. You then go on to explore the extent to which it did or did not lead to the anxiety that, um, you, that you write in the, in the essay had always been with you. And you wonder whether naming and using labels such as anxiety and PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder is always helpful. So when I read your reread your essay, it felt in a number of ways prophetic. Um, you ask, for example, are the names just another way to shrink me down and distance myself from my own body and brain? So can you catch us up on, please, on what has happened in your life since the publication of that essay, and um, and right now?
1: Thank you. Um, yes, uh, that essay is very much concerned with naming and whether or not naming is actually helpful or unhelpful when we're navigating really tough things with um, our brains, such as PTSD um, and anxiety. Um, And I've recently (laughs) circled back to um, this idea of naming in a fairly new context. Um, So I finished my PhD at Northwestern in May 2020, so near the beginning of the pandemic, um and at that point um the pandemic was making it very hard to travel anywhere and I got a one year contract in Colorado and I thought okay I'll follow that see where it goes surely after one year the pandemic will be over um, and we all know how that <laughs> went. <laughs> um so I went to Colorado and for the first time in uh, my life in the US I had good health insurance and at that point um so I've had migraines for many years and they'd been getting increasingly worse um that my medication had stopped working and uh when I had migraines I'd wake up with them in the morning and they were excruciating um and I'd throw up and just nothing seemed to work so I'm like oh I just need to change my medication in the past neurologists had always described these migraines to things like anxiety and stress and I'm like well I have been you know, pretty stressed, um, finishing my PhD and moving. Um, no more stress than usual, I think, but it just must have come to a head with everything. So, anyway, I go and see this new neurologist, and she says, "Why haven't you had an MRI?" And I'm like, "Well, you know, I just assume I'm not going to die from a migraine. A migraine never killed anyone if it's actually a migraine. Um, so, you know, I just, I just think I need." medicine to help me manage these symptoms because they're very debilitating um and she said I really recommend that you have an MRI um so I went and um well I was very resistant due to the price of the MRI um but I did go and I thought it would just clear up any questions um I might have uh, just to make you know prove to everyone that it's just a migraine and even though migraines are not just something you wipe off they're very very difficult things to manage but I just wanted to reassure myself as well after she raised those questions um, and then they found a mass on my brain a tumor um, and at that point naming I didn't know how to name what I felt what uh what I was going through my head at all it just seems so far out of left field for me I mean as someone with anxiety I've imagined plenty of ways that I could have died in various situations um but I've never imagined a brain tumor at all uh so at that point naming just seemed out of my reach completely with this experience I didn't even no authors that I could go to, to read about other authors who had had brain tumors. So I had something to compare it to. Um, So that's where I was at with naming at that stage.
0: Mm. You've more recently written an essay about the tumor, which you called a fried egg in space, um, which, and the essay, congratulations, was recently commended in the 2021 landfall essay competition. So in some ways it belongs with your Headlands essay and, and you write in, in this more recent one that names and what they hide or reveal are important. Tell tell us more about that and, and where the fried egg face came from.
1: Thanks. Um, so a large part of me writing this essay was me trying to prove to myself after uh, my craniotomy to remove my tumor that I still had it in me <laughs> to do so. Um, and When I had the brain tumor, a big comfort I felt was, um, or maybe it wasn't, maybe it just exacerbated the anxiety, but was reading research article after research article about certain types of tumor in your brain. Now, when I first went to see my neurosurgeon, I was desperately hoping my brain tumor was a very specific kind that I knew could be removed and it would never come back. And I asked her if that would be the case of mine, and she said, Most likely not. Um, And that was just utterly devastating for me to hear. Um, And uh, so after the surgery, um, one of the biggest side effects um, was the tumor was quite close to my speech area. So I was informed that I would have um, several weeks of um, some speech delays, uh, minor ones, but I would notice them. Um, and I really, really, really struggled with um, knowing names, things, especially names i would learned more recently. I called, um, uh, my husband plays Pokemon Go, so <laughs> I would call that Porcupine because it seemed close enough. Uh, like, I, I could find words next to things, but it wasn't like I was searching for a name on the tip of my tongue. It was like it just never existed. Um And my words came back, I forged new pathways in my brain, Um, and then after the craniotomy, I eventually got the correct name for my brain tumour, and it both was and wasn't what you hope for. It's basically the best of a bad bunch. (laughs) Um, And the way a lot of scientists describe this particular tumour is that it looks like a fried egg under the microscope. And I'd also been reading an article that um, describes astro-scientists and um, uh, neuroscientists collaborating on a project where they look at the echoes in space of the structures of our brains or vice versa, and I just thought that was beautiful. Um, And as I was writing about my reckoning with the name of this tumor, which for me actually gave me some comfort, I'm like, oh, yes, of course it's that one. It felt like it you know, I'd finally recognized something in myself that had been going on for a long time and I just ascribed to um, various other ills. Um, And at the same time, it made me really reckon with uh, my body as part of the environment of this planet and thinking about um, the havoc we wreak on the planet, but also our own inner workings, um as we just well i was thinking about the satellites in space and how all the leftover satellites are cluttering up space and thinking about how we've we have to live with that now we have to live with this pandemic that is uh, wiping out so many of us in terrible terrible ways um, and it was the essay was me trying to navigate my place in that. And again, is is naming helpful here? And for a moment, when I first heard that name, it was it was helpful.
0: Mm-hmm. Your the tu- the type of tumor that you mm-hmm. were diagnosed with, um, and has been removed. Mm-hmm. Um, being like a a, a fried egg <laughs> under a microscope <laughs> is is that's quite rare compared to sort of. You, you, I think in the essay you talk about the more common type mm-hmm. of um, brain tumor, and they look quite different, don't they? Can you
1: yes. tell us a little bit about that? It's a relative of a slightly more common one called an astrocytoma. Um, so the worst kind of astrocytoma is in stage in grade four. Sorry, um, is glioblastoma, and often when people hear about um, adults with brain tumors it's usually a glioblastoma and they usually um have about an 18 month to six year life expectancy um it's a very brutal difficult disease um and um there are three kinds of tumors within this um uh, glioma family and mine's uh, a fairly well it's a rare kind about four percent of um brain tumours within gliomas are this kind and the benefits of this are actually quite huge given the genetic potential um, for confronting it. It responds extremely well to things like um, surgery and chemotherapy so that gives a lot of um, hope for the future. Um, At the same time um well it's not as pretty pretty under a microscope astrocytomas are named because um for astrocytes which of course makes you think of the stars um and my brain tumor is called uh, the more ugly name oligodendroglioma um which i had to practice a few times <laughs> <laughs> i'm not going to attempt <laughs> no it's not to um, and then there's a third type called an ependymoma. Ooh. um or, yeah, something like that which is usually on the spine um, so it's another kind um, but yes uh, it's incredibly confronting to hear you have any of those brain tumours and like I said I was glad to get the, the best of a bad bunch with really positive genetics for um, later prognosis
0: mm. If I imagine the images of those two types the, the, the one that looks like the star constellation mm-hmm. and then the fried egg I mean, I know zero about brain surgery, but it seems like it might be easier to remove something that looks like a that's like one solid lump rather than it being something that is scattered and that has very fine, you know, connections between parts of, of the tumor throughout the brain. But is that, is that your understanding too? With, with
1: um, yeah, to an extent. Um, I guess the major problem with all kinds of gliomas is that they're very clever. very clever at finding a space in the brain and then uh, they mimic the healthy looking flesh of the brain until they get to their late stages um so uh, many surgeons will say it's almost impossible to get rid of every single cell of them because of how they mimic um and the microscope, once you've got it out, can help you identify exactly what tumor and therefore what path of action to take. And we're so lucky these days that we have these genetic tests available that can offer hope, but also um, uh, encouragement for developing certain weapons against um, these tumors. Uh, but in the brain, they look incredibly similar. A if, if strong feature of my kind of tumor is that it causes brain swelling. And it, that was very much tied to my migraines and the clusters of migraines i I have
0: mm-hmm.
1: so it's been
0: illuminated in the last eighteen months how um it's not really a great place to be in the u s a when you get unwell, so <laughs> for you, how i mean there's the the health system is not set up to just automatically pay for these sorts of things when they happen. You were fortunate enough, I understand, to have some insurance through your job at the time. Is that is that correct? And, yes, that's yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. So how how quickly was it between when your um, specialist said I think you should have an MRI and surgery? Like, what time frame was that?
1: Um, so there was about four months between okay. them, um, and I had the surgery in the midst of a large COVID surge at the hospital, which I didn't realize until afterwards. Um, but they managed to squeeze me in, um, and all the heavily pregnant nurses were assigned to me because this was before most people were um, were vaccinated, who were vaccinated yeah. and uh, that was a way to keep them safe. Mm. Um, and it was a very surreal experience. I mean, I was in a different state, which is uh, hundreds of kilometres away from Chicago, where I'd made all my graduate school friends. Um, So I didn't really know I had one friend, one very good friend who would take me to get my blood drawn and things like that before surgery and pick up medications afterwards because my husband couldn't always get time off. Um, And it was just a very difficult, lonely, isolating experience made more isolating because of the pandemic Um, the crushing fears of how much healthcare costs in America, knowing how many people might have the same condition, but not the same options as I have. um, It just, it became a very numbing. It's it's hard to articulate how difficult it was in that time. Um, And yeah, the pandemic in America just creates a very truly terrible world. Mm -hmm. Was it, before
0: you had surgery that you were like, I want to get home as soon as I can, you know, but I need to have the surgery here. Was that, was that?
1: Um, no. So, um, I was grateful to have the option of surgery there because I trusted this particular neurosurgeon a lot. And I'm very lucky now that I've got here that I've been transferred over to care, um, with doctors here who I um, really appreciate and I'm grateful for, um, had it there because, one, I didn't know when I could get back here because um, I'm so grateful for how New Zealand has stayed, for the most part, fairly produ- protected from the pandemic. But it's been – it was so difficult to get back. Uh, so we, my husband and I didn't get back here until October. Um, and that was just tough to be away from family during this intense time of medical stress. Um Side note to that, my mum was actually able to come see me after surgery, which I had no idea how much I would need until that happened. I really needed her. Um, and uh, But before, I'd always wanted to come back to New Zealand, um, but in my fairly niche academic field, I didn't know if there would ever be like jobs available and if there were, if I would be able to get one. Mm-hmm. Um and I'm just really excited now that I was able to get there. Didn't expect this kind of winding road here, but so grateful that it worked out for me.
0: Yeah, it was quite bizarre for everybody of us to notice that there were three academic positions yes. in creative in writing or literature in um, advertised around the same time. And and you're a very worthy candidate for the Thank role you. at VEC. Uh, how long did the recovery like? Take and how much of that time did you spend in hospital? And then were you sort of out, outpatient support after
1: that? So I had four days in hospital. That was mainly because I had incredibly low blood pressure. Um, and after that, um, uh, I regularly saw my neurosurgeon and neurologist every few weeks until about May. Um, oh, so that was several. Months after, um, and then um, I the problem. Some of the problems of the U.S. medical system is that there's not a lot of follow-up in some areas. Um, you kind of have to really make it happen. Um, and then, of course, I lost my health insurance after a time and just didn't have it for several months while I was waiting to come back to New Zealand. And let me tell you, living in a place like America, which is collapsing under a pandemic when you have a hole in your head (laughs) is not a fun experience Mm, um mm. so I was just when I finally arrived back in New Zealand I just wanted to kiss the ground like never thought I'd actually feel like that because I know it's a stereotype but oh it felt so good I cried Mm. (laughs) um but uh Circling back to your question, which was, can you remind me? I was just saying about the reco- how long oh, the recovery, recovery process yes.
0: took. Yeah.
1: Um, so I still get migraines, but they're treatable medicine now, um, and that is a very freeing place to live. Um, one of the things I did not expect straight after surgery is how much my stamina would be impacted. Um, I had to really build that up. I do yoga fairly frequently because it helps me maintain my strength for uh, just, you know, daily life. And I feel like I'm physically stronger now than I was before my surgery. Um, and of course, my words came back to me in their complete forms um, just about three weeks after surgery. So that that was a massive relief. Um, but um, I write in my essay that Uh, I was thinking a lot about Robin Wall Kimmerer and um, she talks about, and this is because she spoke for a Colorado, University of Colorado series that I was running. And she talks a lot about needing to have relationships with toxic landscapes, landscapes that are hurt by nuclear um, activity, um, by war, by um, pollution of various kinds. And the whole time I was like, but how do you have a relationship with your your, your, you know your toxic body that's like growing this thing <laughs> and that it's not supposed to grow how do you deal with that um and she talks about being comfortable forming uh, relationships that are not driven just by language as a dominant part of our relationship she loves that language obviously she writes um and I was just so afraid of losing that part of me that I felt like was such a I thought, you know, this is where I'm strong, this is where I'm capable. Um, But in that immediate time after surgery when I realized that not all my words were all there for that particular moment in time, I realized that they didn't seem as important right then, that I still knew things and I knew that I could know things without words and I didn't know that. I just didn't know that before. Mm um and so her robin wall camera's words make me think a lot about our relationship with environment with, our, with place with how our environments wreak havoc like cancers and other things in our bodies but also um how we can face those in a way that isn't ignoring the problem but is um acknowledging that you know the world is a mess and sometimes we just need to face up to that mess. Mm. Um, and my body was telling me its messages without words through pain, through migraines, through utter exhaustion, where I felt like I was just being completely lazy, but I wasn't. It was my brain swelling. Mm. Mm. So, yeah, that stood out to me.
0: You do touch on in the essay um, wondering why why you got the brain mm. tumour. And at the time, you were actually living in quite a toxic environment, but that was, you know, much more recent, wasn't it? And how long does it take for a brain tumor like the one you had take to develop would have, I mean, I know it's a million dollar question that you'll probably never know the answer to, but can you talk a little bit about how how important that was to think about why have I got this and... Yeah. Where come from? yeah,
1: yeah, that's a great question. It's something I think my whole family has been wrestling with as well. Um, so where we were living in Colorado, there's all these places around there that are called like wildlife refuge or open space. And what they really mean by that is that it's been damaged um, by various activities for um, uh, plutonium weapons, for example, or gaining access to other nuclear materials. Um, and they're just too toxic Um, for people to live on but apparently okay for wildlife or for us to walk our dogs or go for a bike ride and they don't worry about the houses downwind because they're like, it's a benign place. And so I was really thinking about how in the past brain tumours, they used to be divided into categories called benign um, and malignant. Uh, Since 2016, they are no longer divided into these categories because the brain is such a small space um, and it's encased by bone, and it also has the blood b- brain barrier. That anything growing there
0: is no good. <laughs> yeah, it can be
1: potentially deathly Um, yeah. and needs to be addressed. Like as you know, no matter how fast it's growing. Um, I'm very lucky. Mine was well. It is a million dollar question because no one can say for sure how long mine was growing for. But they think maybe 17 years. It lines up with the development of my migraines um and it also lines up with my increasing exhaustion (laughs) um and it's kind of upsetting to think about you that you had this thing growing for so long and you didn't pay attention to your own body you didn't push harder to get answers you just accepted it um but if if that had been growing for 17 years it's since I was a child um and like that's was my reality you know Mm -hmm. um so we'll never really know, um, and I'm just grateful my tumor is the kind that whose genetics dictate that it's never going to be one of the speedy ones. Mm, um, yeah. But uh, there's several environmental factors in my past that I think could have contributed it. Um, my surgeon says we'll never know for sure, but it's possible. I was exposed to DDT at one point. Uh, I was also exposed to burning plastics fairly frequently, um but uh yes we'll never never Mm. know and and my husband got very intent on making everything organic and everything uh (laughs) like completely chemical free as his way of trying to confront the problem um but uh yes a lot of these things also they're not genetic like it's unlikely that any of my siblings or parents will have anything like this it's just complete. Fluke of
0: nature. Hmm. I bet your husband's glad to be back in nuclear free New Zealand. <laughs>
1: He's very pleased. <laughs> He's incredibly pleased. Yeah.
0: In Headlands, you write Some people have told me I write and think about death too much. They're probably right. The medium, the maxim is to write what you know and I know death. Now that you've come much closer to death with the brain tumour, how has that knowledge and your tendency to write and think about death? changed if if at all
1: yes Um. good question um, <laughs> yes in Papua I feel like um, well something that really confronted me when I came back to New Zealand is that uh, a lot of pakeha people around me didn't seem to acknowledge that death is a thing that happens and that we need to deal with it whereas in papua it was quite you know present there um there you have ways of um facing it even though they can be incredibly painful ways and i was also ill a lot there with malaria um and other illnesses so thought about that a lot um and but then once when I signed the forms for my craniotomy, um, so they list they have all these things that could happen due to a craniotomy. And one of them, the last one, is death. <laughs> and uh, they said I had a lower chance of death because I'm young. But of course, I was thinking about, you know, people going for like foot surgery and still die from a blood clot. <laughs> um, so I, I always knew it was a possible thing, but I decided it was the right thing and I knew that waking up afterwards I I was afraid when you let someone into your brain you're afraid they're going to take a piece of you out so I was also afraid of that kind of death um which I didn't think I could live with so I was immensely relieved to wake up and touch my head and realize okay yes the surgery happened yes I feel like myself just utterly exhausted and in pain (laughs) I I was really angry really angry about it before, well, I still am angry, Um, but especially before the craniotomy and just screamed one night that how, like, why this? (laughs) Couldn't, like, something I'd never even fathomed. Um, And afterwards when I realized, when I got through the surgery, I mean, I was like, okay, I can't control what happens next. I really just can't. But what I can do today is just face up to how I'm feeling today. It might be I'm feeling utterly terrible. Like, I mean, this past weekend I was feeling quite ill, and and I realized that I just can't push through to the ends of it every single day of my life. Um, and I guess it taught me about boundaries. <laughs> boundaries are good, and um, I've never been very good at setting boundaries with myself. Um and I'm still afraid of death, but it's not as... Uh, writing the essay about coming out of the surgery felt like a thin place. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Celtic mythology, they believe that there were thin places where you know, God or spirit world was right there, right on the other side, and you could almost touch it. And that felt like a thin place and a place that I could be more at peace with. It's not something I want. But it's something that I just felt more acquainted with. That that it has a knowledge of me and I have a knowledge of it. Um, and we're just both trying to work out what to do with each other. And that might not make any sense to some people. It um, makes sense to me. Great. I've been
0: I've been in that thin place when, yeah. when my first husband died, so Yeah. It's it's um it's yeah, it's hard to find words for it, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Uh,
1: and I guess that's why I write, because mm. even when I say that, you know, I realized that language wasn't the be-all and end-all, it still was my favorite way of trying to work out life and death. <laughs> mm. Um So I'll always be doing it, and um it helped me navigate through.
0: Mm. Again, me too. <laughs> <laughs> um the feminist in me wants to ask, I thought of this before, and it's just I just remembered it again. if you with the migraines, so women you know so often are just, oh, it's a migraine, it's a woman, you know brr. Do you think if you'd been a man having those sorts of migraines, something might have happened faster?
1: I absolutely think so, And this is part where I get quite annoyed at people <laughs> um because I think, um, well, with time constraints with how the world is a lot of times people are programmed to see young women headaches oh you must be stressed um and doesn't matter if they keep coming back it's always stress um and in Colorado that was the first time I'd had a woman neurologist and she immediately was like vomiting when you wake up and pain that's not normal um and it is a big red flag it could still mean nothing but I really think you should get this looked into felt very like much more rapid compared to the previous years um so I do get annoyed about that other times I'm like oh maybe it just came at the right time when I actually had good health insurance and could get it taken care of and it was maybe pointless before then but yeah I go back and forth of that but I absolutely think if I was a man it would have being found sooner um, treated more seriously initially Um, but I had a wonderful woman neurologist and a wonderful woman neurosurgeon and they treated me really well. Mm. Would you
0: say to any of our listeners who are experiencing ongoing chronic migraines to you know push a little bit harder and and get it investigated a bit deeper?
1: I would. Um, mm. There's usually some big red flags, and this does not mean you have a brain tumor. It just means that it's worth just asking your doctor a few more questions to see if it's worth thinking of, that it's something else. Um, there's also quite a few other things that could be going on that are mm-hmm. all treatable and manageable. Um, but vomiting in the morning from after you've had a sleep and you've, got, you've had a migraine all night or you've woken up with a migraine and then vomiting, those... A massive red flags um again can be caused by other things but do warrant an mri um and if you have a migraine a really severe migraine and you or and it's a change in previous headaches or it's getting increasingly worse um and it th- appears to be accompanied by things such as brain fog um and if, if you have brain fog you know it's like wallowing through concrete in your brain <laughs> um then it's worth just getting looked into. Again, probably nothing. It usually is nothing with these things, but um if you have a niggling feeling that something's wrong, no matter what your particular issue is that you're worrying about, I always think it's worth getting checked out.
0: Hmm. Because did you say earlier in the interview that you lost the capacity for, for some particular words um before you had the surgery so it wasn't a consequence of the surgery it was a consequence of the brain tumor that you were losing words yeah yeah
1: when i had my most severe migraines before surgery i just i found i would stutter sometimes i found it harder to search for the words and i just described that to pain but it was actually um my neurologist pointed out she asked me quite a few questions and she was like that sound sounds like you have intense brain fog and it's become so common for you that you think it's normal and you think it's laziness that you need to push through
0: <laughs> mm. i'm glad that she got to the bottom <laughs> of it so that now that you've discovered you you know you described earlier how when you woke up and the language wasn't immediately there and you and you had to sort of kind of readapt and and, and create new neural pathways for your language and now that you know so much more about your own brain, do you think you're any closer to answering your question that you asked um, in the Headlands essay, which is, are the names just another way to shrink me down and distance myself from my own body and brain?
1: Uh, that's a hard question. I don't know. I don't think I'll ever know the answer to this mm. question. And sometimes they're helpful, sometimes they're not um, I mean, I, I felt more at peace when I knew the name of my brain tumor because at least then I could be like, okay, now I know what I need to do next. To and there's da- this. there's data out there there's on data what's happened out with other people. Yeah. yeah, heaps. There's research. Um, so it, it's a way to face that. Um, and at the same time, um, I think any person who has any form of illness um, – knows that sometimes other people use those illnesses in ways that kind of shrink you down to just being bad. And that gets annoying for anyone. Mm. <laughs> um, so I like to think that this brain tumor is a weird uh, incident <laughs> on my, uh, in my life. And um, it's in other times uh, naming things just aren't as helpful when because it seems to scrap away some of the complexities of a situation. Uh, so, yes, that doesn't really answer your question. But that's, no. that's where it's I'm at. A, it's a
0: response to the question, and that's just perfect. <laughs> so I wish you all the best with your new role. Um, at, in uh, Just tell us briefly about your new role. Just to finish yes, up, yes, I
1: will be a lecturer.
0: Give, give us a give the program a plug if you want.
1: Oh yes, of course. <laughs> um, I'll be a lecturer in literary and creative communication at Te Hira Victoria University of Wellington. Um, and what I really, really love about this program is how it emphasises critical as well as expresses or creative approaches to writing, um, which is something that I've always kind of been obsessed with in my research and my creative practice that's why i keep why well, i always mix them together and can't quite settle and finally there's a job that accounts for that um so i'm really excited to um work with the students who are also interested in these things and work with my colleagues as well
0: great well i wish you all the best for that and i look forward to coming to visit you in wellington thank you <laughs> okay thanks bonnie You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life. My name is Kerry Sunderland and I have just been chatting with author and brain tumour survivor Bonnie Etherington. Now it's time for the second bookend, Death on Screen, when I briefly review a film, TV series or online resource that explores something to do with death and dying or living, as it turns out today. (laughs) So today I want to talk about the documentary My Beautiful Broken Brain, a 2014 film about the life of 34-year-old Lotja Soderlund after she suffered a stroke as a result of a congenital vascular malformation. Lotja initially experienced aphasia, the complete loss of her ability to read, write or speak coherently. And the film shows how, with the help of speech therapy and a lot of hard work and practice on her part she slowly learned how to do all three again and i'm just going to play you the trailer for the doco
2: i was a pretty normal very busy cl- kind of a clever person and now i'm starting from the beginning my sister Lotje, was an extremely dynamic very impassioned individual I remember Jan kind of calling out Lotja, but she wasn't responding. I decided to call 999. She was undergoing a medical emergency to her brain, and she had a very high probability of dying. We literally had no idea what the outcome would be. I can't write at all. What about these photographs? This, uh, my my nephew. She's your nephew? Yes, nephew, and now she's also a niece. And a nephew? Neef. niece. She's the most articulate person, so it's almost obscene that it's affected that part of her brain. A B, C, D, e, F, a, B, C, D, E, F, G. Something's happened to me, which nobody's really explained to me yet. I started seeing flashes of color, like. I feel like I'm in a David Lynch movie. Dear Mr. Lynch, I've discovered this portal where my brain once was. So I'd love to share it with you because I think you're going to like it. Whether it's my brain or reality, I can experience colours and, and sounds like I, like I wasn't able to before. The brain is a beautiful thing,
1: my
2: I am different than I was. I'm never going to be the same. And in that discovery, I've become empowered.
0: And that was the trailer for My Beautiful Broken Brain, which you can watch at the moment in New Zealand, and I assume Australia, on Netflix. So in the doco, Lotia begins, well, the film is made when she begins recording video selfies just a few days after the stroke while she's still in hospital. Large parts of the film consist of material that she filmed herself on her iPhone. And this, together with various sequences showing the world from her point of view at the time, including, for example, all the visual misperceptions and hallucinations she was having, form the film. There is also a quest at the heart of the story. Lotia is a David Lynch fan, as you heard her say in the trailer, and she begins recording messages to him, which he receives as he eventually comes on board as executive director of the film. It's a really fascinating insight into our brains and how we can rebuild neural pathways. For example, Lotia can say the word gobbledygook but she can't say the word the. Uh, she seems to remember pronouns, adverbs and adjectives, but not nouns and some verbs. Um, mathematical function, um, she notes, is impaired. She has a heightened sense of reality, which can lead to euphoria. She fe- she notices that time feels really elongated and um, interestingly she can do things like touch type really efficiently and fast but then she can't read what she's just typed. So it's it's a really incredible view of how our brains work and how we can rebuild those neural pathways. And she, she really emphasizes that that's what it's all about. it's about rewiring her brain. While there are moments of heartbreak in the documentary, um, she says at one point, for example, anything can happen at any time to any degree, so I better not have faith in anything. The story is ultimately uplifting. And she, as she says in the trailer, you know, her life changes forever, but now she doesn't need to return to her old life because she's made a whole new life at being an amazing artist. Producing works of art about what it's like to have recovered from a stroke and and to rebuild her language skills So she's actually made several other films and I think she's a, she's writ, had some written um, work published as well So check it out my beautiful broken brain on netflix You've been listening to death walkers guide to life Find out more about the show and how you can follow me kerry sunderland at deathwalkersguidetolife.com Once again, ka mihi A big thank you to CNF Legal for sponsoring the show. CNF Legal's specialist team of solicitors and legal executives can help you with every aspect of planning for the inevitable end of your life, so give Maria Robin a call on 03 545 808 or visit their website cflegal.co.nz.